If you have a copy of God's Word with you, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 1 this evening. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It's a pleasure to be with you all this evening. I love uh, getting to intern at Independent Presbyterian, but one of the things I love about being Presbyterian is that we are an interconnected body of churches, and I just absolutely love getting to come see other bodies and, and worship with other brothers and sisters in the faith. It's always very encouraging for, for my soul. I hope it is uh, for you as well. So Ephesians chapter 1, we'll be just considering two verses tonight, verses 13 and 14. Give your attention to the reading of the Word of God. In him, that is, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let us go to him once more in prayer. Let's pray. Our most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, great are you, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. You who have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, we pray that by your Spirit, with whom you have sealed us, that you would now move in our hearts uh, to understand your word, to receive it with humility, that it may bear fruit in our lives. And we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, my guess is that not many of you in here today write a whole lot of letters. Although I'm sure at one point in your time, maybe if you're a slightly older generation than mine, maybe there was a time when you wrote more letters, especially before the advent of email in the 90s. And, or maybe you've received a letter before. I know some people who who still write letters today. There's something meaningful about it, something enjoyable about it, but I'm sure we're all familiar with the concept of, of letter writing. And there's something beautiful about it, of, of the personalization of it, beyond just sort of a, a little email or a message online, something like that. When I was in college, my younger sister and I, we would actually correspond by letter a little bit. It was, it was something that was uh, very enjoyable. It was personal. Getting a letter of hers, I knew that she had taken time to sit down and, and think through it, and, and likewise, when I would write a letter to her, and one of the reasons that she enjoyed letter writing so much, she had other people she would write letters to, is it was almost like an art project, and I would get the letters, and there would be decorative art in the margins, and she would have a way she would uh, write, and she enjoyed doing the calligraphy, and one thing that she always put on every single letter of hers was a particular wax seal. She had this little seal that had her initial, a K, on it, and she would melt the wax, she'd pour it on the, on the back of the envelope and press it down and seal it. And I would get these letters, and one of those distinctive marks of a letter from Catherine was the K seal on the back of the letter. Now, what's interesting about our text this afternoon is that it too talks of a seal. Christians, believers, the people of God themselves have a distinctive seal upon them, just like my sister's letters did to me in college. But the difference is that that seal of the Christian, it's not wax, 
It's not some other kind of material. No, the seal of the Christian is God himself. It is the Holy Spirit of God, as Paul wants us to see in our text this evening. So we have four points this evening to see what is it about this seal? What is this seal of the Holy Spirit? First, we want to see who the seal is. Secondly, we want to see what the seal does. Thirdly, how we are sealed. And fourthly, why we are sealed. You could think of that as the, the who, the what, the how, and the why of the seal of the Holy Spirit. And that really is the central concept of these two verses of Ephesians 1. It's this idea of sealing. There's lots of things that are going on grammatically in, this, in these two verses, but it all points to and has this idea of sealing. The main verb of the original language is that verb, you were sealed. Everything else is leading up to that point. In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's the main idea Paul wants to get at in this passage. And now his readers are certainly going to be familiar with the idea of a seal. Now, if you think back to the first century context, when Paul is writing this letter, he's probably writing it on a piece of papyrus, some kind of papyrus paper, and most likely he's going to roll it up into a scroll and he's going to hand it off to a friend of his and partner in the ministry. He's going to deliver this letter. And it's, it's quite probable that this letter to the Ephesians was itself sealed with some kind of seal. We don't know that, but they were very common in the ancient world. And so it's quite possible that that happened. But either way, Paul's readers, they understand what he means by a seal, what a seal is and what it does. These were common things in his day. And a seal did a number of things things. When people are writing letters in the first century and they put a seal on that letter, there's a few things that it does. For one, a seal is a form of authentication. It's like a guarantee saying this document that you're receiving, it's from me. There's a distinctive seal that goes on it, a mark, an imprint that goes into the wax that says this is from this person because they're the only ones who have that mark. So you can think of maybe royal seals. Uh, oftentimes, royal seals, now we see those today usually as, as sort of just like an emblem that gets put on banners and things like that. But uh, you think of a royal seal in the first century, usually it's some kind of mark that goes on the wax that only that person has. So it's a form of guarantee that this is authentic, this is real. But another thing that the seal does is it keeps that letter protected. It protects the contents. It keeps the scroll rolled up so that it's not unraveling everywhere and exposed to the elements. And maybe some of the, the ink might get smudged or it might get torn. It might get ripped. No, it keeps all the contents inside and safe and secure and keeps them movable and compact so that it's easy to handle and, and safer to handle that way. Or you think about even in modern letter writing, how you put a letter into an envelope. And what does that envelope do? Well, it protects the contents of that letter. It keeps what's inside safe from the elements, from being tampered with. It's itself a form of protection, a form of guarantee. Paul's readers understand all of this. He says, you were sealed. They know 
they know in their heads what is that seal. But then Paul does something interesting here. As he takes that idea of a seal and he says, you are not sealed with a something. You were sealed with a someone. You were sealed when you heard the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Jesus Christ for the first time, you were sealed not with wax, not with some other material. No, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the third person of the Godhead. You were sealed with God himself. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, God put himself on you. He didn't leave you to yourself. You know, sometimes we have this idea that, that Christianity is almost this lone wolf thing, as if, well, God comes in and he saves me and then I'm off and I've got to go do my own thing and I've got to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I've got to work hard to prove my salvation or something. But, but brothers and sisters, when God saves a person, he doesn't leave them to themselves. He comes close to them. He comes as close as you possibly can to them. He indwells that person by his Holy Spirit. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, we are the temple of God. You, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a walking, living, breathing, moving temple of God. Just as God and the power of his majesty would come down on the temple and he would dwell over the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies and his special presence dwelt there on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And if you wanted to be with God, you wanted to be near God, you came to that place when Jesus Christ said to Telestai it is finished and the, the curtain was torn in two. What happened? Later, the Holy Spirit came down in Pentecost and even though the presence of God was gone from the temple, the presence of God left the temple so that it could go elsewhere and it went on to the people of God. And God then sent out in the world, through his church, his temple, his presence, in you, the people of God, because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, by the very presence of God himself. And it's that presence of God through his spirit that is his mark of guarantee upon us, his promise that we are his authentic children. It's the spirit of adoption who cries in our hearts, Abba, Father, who testifies to us that we are his children. It's his spirit that seals us until the day of redemption. His spirit that will preserve us through all the trials of life. His spirit that guarantees us that when the day of judgment comes, and when God comes in judgment on this earth to recreate the earth, to flood it not with water, but with fire and recreate all things, you will be preserved. Because God himself dwells in you and God himself has sealed you by the power of his spirit. We live in a world that is full of suffering, that is full of difficulty, that is full of trials. I think if there's one thing that, that childhood innocence really is about, it's, it's this, this innocence of the suffering of life 
I think one of the things that as I progressed through my college years, I began to really realize more and more is that life is hard and life is full of suffering and life is full of trials. And no one goes through this, line, this life unhurt or unbroken. When the temptations to sin seem to swarm around you, when another trial comes along that you don't think you can bear the weight of, what does God say to you? He says, you are sealed. You are sealed by his Holy Spirit. It's not up to you to make it through life on your own. It's not up to you to bear up by yourself under every temptation. It's not up to you to bear the weight of all the suffering that life brings with it. It's not up to you to make it in the day of judgment. Why? Because God's seal is upon you, the seal of his Holy Spirit. Now that's a wonderful thing, but maybe you're sitting there and thinking, okay, that's a beautiful thing. How do I know? How do I know that I have the seal of the Holy Spirit? What are the signs? What are the indicators? I can't see the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he can't be felt. He can't be touched. He can't be, he can't be seen. So how do we know that we have the Holy Spirit of God? And this is our second point, and that is what the seal does. What does the Holy Spirit do? To answer that question, look back at verse 4 with me, if you will. Verse 4, talking about God's plan in eternity past to save a people for himself. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. See, when God comes into our life by his spirit to indwell us, he doesn't leave us like he found us. No, he comes and he changes us. What does he do when he changes us? He makes us holy. He makes us blameless. He conforms us to his righteous image. The primary way that the Holy Spirit does this is through love. Over and over and over again, Scripture emphasizes that there is a particular kind of work of the Holy Spirit in sanctifying us and making us look more like Jesus Christ. And what you can summarize that as is love. The Holy Spirit, when he comes into a person's life, he fills them with love. Do you think of the fruit of the Spirit? In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, what is the very first item on that list of the fruit of the Spirit? It is love. Romans 5.5 5 says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When the Spirit comes into a person's life, he does not leave them alone. No, he creates and works up love within that person. Now, I don't think I need to tell you that love is a bit of an abused word in our day and age. You you usually hear the word love thrown around or these, these sort of cheesy cliches, love is love, that doesn't even really mean much of anything. It's, it's you know, what does that even mean? And it's sort of equated to just this, this warm, fuzzy feeling that I get inside of myself. But, but that's not a biblical view of love. What is the biblical view of love? The biblical view of love is that idea of Romans chapter 5, verse 5, which says it's God's love that has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
What is God's love like? Well, when, when Scripture says God's love has been poured into our hearts, it's a love that comes from God. It's a love that's for God, that God determines, that God sets, that God sets the standard for. And how does God set that standard of love? What is God's love like? 1 John 5, 3, it says, This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And what are the two basic commandments that God gives us? Love God and love neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So what does it look like to be sealed with the Spirit of God? It means that you have the Holy Spirit living within you, and what does he do as he lives within you? He creates love in you. And that particular kind of love, it's a selfless love. It's a love that isn't concerned with me. It's a love that's concerned with others. It's a love for, first and foremost, God, and secondly, for neighbor. So how do you know that the seal of God is upon you? How do you know that the Holy Spirit lives within you? Do you love God and do you love neighbor? I don't mean perfectly. I don't mean this roaring, flaming kind of love that, that's big and bright and bold, although that's a wonderful thing to have. No, God doesn't say you need to have perfect love. We will only achieve perfect love in the life to come. But is the real, genuine love for God in your heart? Is there a real, genuine love for your neighbor as yourself in your heart? Is it there? Is it glowing? Is it alive? If it is, you should take comfort because God's seal has been put upon you. And he is going to preserve you until the day of redemption. He is going to preserve you through the trials of this life. He is going to continue to pour his love into you. He is going to work in your life to make you holy and blameless before him. You should rest assured, people of God, if you see that love. So that's our second point. We've seen the who of the seal. We've seen the what of the seal. But now we want to ask the question, well, how? How does this seal come about? How does this seal received in the first place? But secondly, how does this seal grow? Maybe you're sitting there and you say, yes, I, can, I, I feel this seal. I know the love is there, but I want it to grow. It's not what I want it to be. I want a greater work of God in my life. I want this seal to be bigger, to be stronger, to be more beautiful and vibrant. I want the Spirit's work in my heart. How do I get it? Paul tells us in this passage. He does not leave us alone. Look again at verse 13. Paul gives us a twofold answer on how we are sealed. He says, In him you also, when you, one, heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and two, believed in him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. How does God give us his seal? It is by the simple means of hearing and believing. This is radically countercultural in, in, in the day and age in which we live. We live in a very image-based society. We are surrounded by 
by smartphones and pictures and by, by images and billboards and all kinds of things you can see, our televisions, movies, all of these things. We're all surrounded by these images, and we love the big, the bright, the bold, the, the impressive. That's, that's us in our minds. That's what's really good. That's the kind of thing that really moves and changes and shakes. And we like the big and the exotic, the impressive. And yet God cuts through all of that in his word. And he says, that's not how I work. How does God work? God works through the simple, mundane means of hearing and believing. He works through the unimpressive, ordinary means of hearing. Why, why is it that, that, there's no, that I'm not standing here with a big projector screen behind me and, and flashing really impressive images? And why, why don't we just look at things? Why don't, why don't we have all kinds of artwork hanging on the walls in our churches and in, in our Reformed and Presbyterian churches? I, why can't we have, like, uh, you go down to these Roman Catholic ch- churches you see and there's all these, these frescoes and these murals and all of these impressive-looking things. Why don't we do that? We don't do that because we understand that there is a way that God has promised to work, and the way that God has promised to work is not through the big, the bold, impressive things that we can see. No, he promises to come to us in his word by hearing and believing. And it is through his word that he seals us. It is through the preached word of God that he works that seal on us, that he works belief in us. It is the Spirit working through hearing and belief that these things come about. Paul puts it in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, this isn't just a simple uh, beginning of things. It's not as if, oh, this is the way you're saved, but then after you're saved, you can go on to these other things. No, this is the basic way that that seal comes initially and continues to grow and work in your life. How does God save us? He saves us by hearing the preached word and by working that belief within us. How does God continue to grow us? He continues to grow us by hearing and believing. Now, that's not to say God has completely eliminated any and all visible means. I stand here preaching to you, and right below me is a table, is the Lord's Supper. There is a visible word, as it were, that God gives his people. But again, it's not the big, the bold, the impressive, the complex. No, it's a simple cup of wine. It's a simple loaf of bread, a sign and seal of God's word to us that comes alongside the seal of the Spirit. We don't need big, bold, impressive pictures. God's given us a picture, and he's given us his word that explains that picture to us. And it's through these things that God sustains us, and he works in us. Have you ever wondered uh, why we spend so much time on sermons in, in church services? So you think about it, and, and you come here in and, and the evening, and you've got about an hour-long service, and, oh, half of that's just a guy standing up here talking to you. you know, well, why is that? Why, why do you come, and why do you sit under a 30-minute sermon? Why is it that your pastors and pastors all over the world spend so much time 
preparing a sermon every single week, studying the text and, and, and interpreting it and, and, and writing it out and trying to, un- to find the right way to say things and the right turn of phrase and the way to organize it to make it understandable. Why so much time on a sermon? You think about it, it's sort of an unusual thing. How many people do you know who every single week go sit and listen to someone monologue to them for at least half an hour? It doesn't happen. Why do we do these things? We do these things because God has promised to work through these things. We do these things because God has a particular way of working, and the particular way that he has of working is through his word, through hearing and belief. When you walk through those doors every single Sunday and you sit down in that chair, you are doing something extraordinary. You are coming to partake of the means by which God himself has promised to seal his people with himself, to preserve them, to grow them, to guarantee them in their own hearts that they are his own. You are partaking of the means of grace of the creating and redeeming God of the universe. That is a beautiful thing. When you come and you come to church, come expectantly. Come prepared to hear a word from God. Talk about the sermon. Talk about it with each other. Talk about it with your family, with your spouse. Meditate on the sermon because God is doing an extraordinary thing when he brings a message to bear to his people. He works in us and on us through this ordinary, mundane means of hearing and believing. So that's the the who of the seal, the what of the seal, the how of the seal. But now, lastly, we want to ask a very important question, why? Why would God seal us? Why does he put his Holy Spirit upon us? Why is he preserving us until the day of redemption The answer to that question is back in verse 11 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. If you look at verse 11 in your Bibles, it says, In him that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Paul, in Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, he is thinking about a spiritual inheritance that God has stored up for us in Jesus Christ. Now, he's not thinking about necessarily the the a physical you know big mansion and house it's not as if if god is going to give you all these nice things in this life that paul is thinking here about spiritual blessings spiritual blessings that he's just spent the first 10 verses of the book of ephesians enumerating for us to help us understand if you look back at verse 3 it says that god has blessed us in christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places What do those spiritual blessings look like that we get in our inheritance from God? Well, we are chosen by him, predestined before the foundation of the world. We're predestined in love for adoption. God adopts us as his own. He doesn't leave us just as slaves, as servants, as just sort of citizens as a kingdom. No, he brings us to himself as sons. That is our inheritance. Verse 7 says that we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of trespasses, 
and ultimately inheritance of a new heavens and a new earth, as verse 10 says, to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. When heaven and earth become one, God recreates the world and dwells with his people. That is your inheritance. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He seals you until that inheritance. Verse 14 says the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now that word guarantee is interesting. In the, in the Greek, it, it signifies something like a down payment. It's the idea of, of a first payment on something that guarantees the fuller payment yet to come. So if you think about buying a house, if you buy a house, assuming you're not very wealthy and can't just pay cash for a house, uh, which is most of us, you put a down payment on the house. Now, what is that? It is a portion of the full price of the house that you put forward. And what you're doing when you put that down payment down is you are saying this is the beginning of the fuller payment. It's part of that full payment yet to come. And it's guaranteeing to your lender that you are going to fully pay that price for the house. Here's the beginning of it, and the greater, fuller price is yet to come. And that is what Paul is saying the Holy Spirit does for us. God begins in the here and the now to give us our inheritance through the Holy Spirit. He already testifies in our hearts that we are adopted as sons. He, here and now, forgives our sins. He, here and now, gives us little glimpses of joy and bliss in the new heavens and the new earth. He, in the here and now, works up love in our hearts and communes with us by his Spirit. He's doing all of these things. Why does he do these things? Because he's guaranteeing that the greater, fuller inheritance is yet to come. He's guaranteeing that just as you taste a little bit of the work of God in your life and the work of the Spirit in your life here and now, that he is going to pour out those blessings upon you in the life to come in ways that you can't even imagine, in a fuller, more profound, more beautiful way that is beyond human reckoning. That is what the Holy Spirit does in your life. He seals you as a guarantee of that life to come. He guarantees the greater spiritual blessings yet to come. That is the purpose of this seal of the Spirit. And if you'll allow me one more question, I'd like to close with this. One more question. We could maybe ask the, the other proverbial childhood question, why? <laughs> why? Well, Why? Why this seal of the Spirit? Why a promised inheritance yet to come? The answer to that is at the end of verse 14. It is all to the praise of his glory. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism reminds us, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Why does God indwell you by his Spirit? Why does he guarantee these promised blessings to you? Why does he work this love in your heart? Why does he grow you through hearing and believing? Why does he do these things? He does it so that you will worship him. 
he does it for our good and for his glory that we may make much of God. Let's pray.